Welcome to Double Truck Stories, the home to some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Mike Philbrick, your host for the Double Truck Stories podcast. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Glares, shouts, eye rolls, and the occasional dressing down of his team to the media, and not to mention more than a few national championships. That's the amount of Nick Saban that most people get to see. But as these 14 stories will tell you, there's far more depth and humanity than meets the eye. Stick around after the story for my conversation with ESPN senior writer Kevin Van Valkenburg as we talk about how a famously hard-nosed coach has been a great person right under our noses. Now we present Nick Saban is More Than a Scowl by Kevin Van Valkenburg. Nick Saban is More Than a Scowl. The most powerful man in college football raises a skeptical eyebrow when he hears the question. His glare feels like it could crack one of the crystal trophies in his office. Two seconds of silence passes. It feels like two minutes. What is something Nick Saban thinks people get wrong about Nick Saban? Finally, a hint of a smile creeps across his face. He removes his reading glasses and folds his hands in front of his chin, interlocking his fingers. One of the things that has bothered me a little through the years is I don't think the perception that people have of me as a coach is really truly who I am as a person, Saban says. I'm always portrayed as the tough, grinding, working hard guy. And I think those things are true, but there is more than that. And I don't think people realize that. After winning 218 games and six national championships, after spending more than a decade as the man everyone in the sport is both chasing and trying to emulate, it would be easy to assume Saban, at 66 years old, does not see flaws in his own methods. But ask him if there is anything he wishes he could change about himself, and he mulls it for a full beat. I always pray that I won't get angry, he says. Because most of the time, when I get angry or emotional... I don't make good decisions. Sometimes I appear to be angry as a coach, but I'm not really angry. People don't remember what you say. They remember how you made them feel. I think I've gotten a little better at that, but there is definitely room for improvement. The more questions you ask, the more it's apparent that, yes, there are things that people get wrong about Nick Saban. Yes, there are the requisite tales of Saban snarling at a player for missing a block, or at an assistant coach for what he believes was a boneheaded play call. But those might be the least interesting tales anyone can tell about Alabama's mercurial coach. The best Nick Saban stories, like the 14 that follow, do more than illuminate. They offer context, complexity, and humor to a story of a man so relentlessly focused on what's next it's easy to overlook how we got here. It's December in Miss Helminski's eighth-grade music class in Monongah, West Virginia. With the semester winding down, all students in the class are required to get up and sing a solo as part of their final project. Saban, age 14, refuses. I was so shy, I just wouldn't do it, he says. I got a D in music. Saban's father, Big Nick, a stern, hot-tempered disciplinarian who has Saban working at the family-owned gas station every minute that he's not in school or playing sports, tells Saban he is done playing basketball for the season. I still remember my mom folding my uniform up and taking it back to school, Saban says. But the real lesson is still to come. 
Monongah, like many tiny towns in West Virginia, is a mining community, and every kid who grows up around coal miners sees the toll the grueling work takes on the people who go down into the mines each day. One afternoon, shortly after Saban's grades come in, Big Nick arranges for a coal miner to take him and his son into a nearby mine. Saban's father waits until they reach the bottom to deliver the message. If you don't get good grades, this is where you're going to end up working for the rest of your life. As they begin the slow elevator climb to the surface, Saban has one thought, and it has stayed with him all of his life. I'm never coming back down here again. At some point during Saban's tenure as Michigan State's defensive coordinator, a job he holds from 1983 to 87 after assistant coaching stints at Kent State, his alma mater, Syracuse, West Virginia, Ohio State, and Navy, he is on a recruiting trip in Youngstown, Ohio, where Bob Stoops, the uncle of the former Oklahoma coach, is the head coach at South High. The two want to have a cocktail at the end of the day to unwind and talk about football. They pick a dimly lit dive bar and start scribbling down formations, drawing up plays on napkins, arguing the way friends sometimes do. They are so invested in making their points that they don't notice when a man walks into the bar with a shotgun and robs the place. They had no idea, never saw him, never paid attention, and never stopped doing what they were doing, says Kentucky coach Mark Stoops, who relays the story he's heard passed down through the years. A few minutes later, some police came in and started asking them, what happened? What did they see? They said, we don't even know what you're talking about. The year is 1988, and Hal Mummy is coaching football at Copperas Cove High School in Texas. His offense is throwing the ball all over the field, and he's tinkering with a philosophy that will one day break records at Kentucky, dragging the rest of the SEC out of college football's dark ages, and even occasionally frustrate Nick Saban. Mummy isn't much interested in defense, unless it's figuring out how to exploit one. He and Saban are the same age, but couldn't be less alike, in personality or expertise. The defensive coordinator on Mummy's staff, however, considers Saban a genius. Saban, a newly hired defensive backs coach with the Houston Oilers, hasn't been a head coach yet, but word has gotten around in the coaching community. The coordinator writes to him for months, asking to watch film with Saban, to pick his brain for a bit. Mummy doesn't understand all the fuss. Saban finally calls my guy back and says, Okay, I'll meet you such and such Saturday in April, Mummy says. Well, it's the Saturday before Easter. My defensive coordinator comes in and he's just crushed. Coach, we've had this family trip planned forever. I can't go. But how about you go? I'll give you the list of questions. You go to the meeting, write down everything Saban says, and we'll be a lot better on defense. Mummy agrees, somewhat reluctantly. Saban meets him at the door of the Oilers' facility. I have no idea what I'm doing, Mummy says. I have a list of questions on a yellow legal pad that I think should take about 30 minutes. Well, we watch film for four hours. Four. He doesn't know me from the defensive coordinator who was idolizing him. I'm just some high school coach. But he was still so patient. After, as Saban locks the door to the facility, he grabs Mummy by the arm and says, Don't tell anybody we did this, because Mr. Adams, the Oilers' owner, will fire me. I'm like, don't worry about it. Your secret is safe in Copper's Cove, Mummy says. 
After Saban spends 1990 at Toledo, he jumps to serve as Bill Belichick's defensive coordinator with the Browns until he takes over at Michigan State in 1995. He takes the LSU job at the end of 1999. By 2001, the Tigers have improved but haven't yet grown into the team that will go 13-1 and and win a national title two years later. Saban brings in Dr. Kevin Elko, a motivational speaker and author who talks to the players and coaches about appreciating one another, how essential it is when you're striving to achieve an important goal. When he's done, the room is quiet. It's clear to Will Muschamp, now South Carolina's coach, but then an assistant with the team, that everyone is taking in what Elko has just said. Finally, Saban breaks the silence. Well, I guess I'd better start appreciating you a-holes. Simone Augustus is the number one women's basketball recruit in the country in 2002. The Baton Rouge native has narrowed her choice to two schools, LSU and six-time national champ Tennessee. In our staff meeting, Coach Sue Gunter said, why don't we call Nick and ask him if he can find some time to speak to the family while they're here, says Bob Starkey, then an LSU assistant coach. It's a couple of weeks before LSU's spring football game, so they don't want to get their hopes up. But Saban says he's happy to help, insists they invite Augustus and her family to a closed practice, and promises to drop in and say hello. The next day he called and said, Hey, I need all the info you have on her, Starkey says. We sent him about five pages. We later found out he made copies and gave them to his entire staff at a staff meeting and went over it. He told his staff, This is the number one player in the country, and she's a Baton Rouge kid. When you see her during her visit, I don't care what you're doing. You stop, and you go over and introduce yourself. You tell her you want her to be a Tiger. Augustus ends up picking LSU, where she goes to three consecutive Final Fours. To me... Nick Saban meant so much because of LSU football, Augustus says. It was cool to experience who he was in person after experiencing from afar all the success he had. Says Starkey, when it came to helping other sports, Nick was unbelievable. LSU has just won its first national championship in 45 years. The New Orleans Marriott Hotel on Canal Street feels like Mardi Gras on January 4, 2004, It's a sea of blissful fans draped in purple and gold with music blaring and liquor splashing. And the ballroom upstairs feels like a -a once-in-a-generation party. Nick Saban is in a chair just outside that ballroom by himself. He's making recruiting calls. No one dares go near him. Thirty years of coaching had been building to this moment. Saban's first-ever championship. And now he is celebrating alone by preparing for the next season. It's 2006, Saban's second year as head coach of the Dolphins, and quarterback's coach Jason Garrett is nervous. He wants a day away from training camp so he can attend the Hall of Fame induction of his good friend Troy Aikman. He waits for a day when the defense plays great in practice, figuring Saban will be in a good mood. But Garrett launches into a mealy-mouthed plea, and after three minutes, Saban cuts in. What the hell are you asking me? Aikman's going into the Hall of Fame, Garrett says. We played eight years together. Is it okay if I go? Saban looks at me and says, You just don't get it, do you? You don't think we can survive without you for the day? Trust me, we're going to be okay. Do you like the guy? He's a good buddy? Go to the Hall of Fame. 
Saban's players aren't sure what to think of him in 2007, his first camp at Alabama. He wasn't that great of a coach in the NFL, a few grumble among themselves. He went 6-10 and in his second season. How tough can he be? They find out in a hurry. The days feel 10 degrees hotter, the practices an hour longer, the film sessions more grueling. Attrition is rampant. Early on, offensive lineman Mike Johnson listens as Saban addresses the team with a warning. The guys that were here before, I can't replace you right now. But when I can replace you, I will, Saban says. I promise you won't be here. It's January 2010, and Alabama has just defeated Texas 37-21 to win its first national title since 1992. Quarterback Greg McElroy is bouncing around the locker room, holding the championship trophy, organizing the after-party, when Saban marches into the room and asks for everyone's attention. McElroy recalls what Saban said. To you seniors, I just want to thank you for everything you did. Absolutely amazing. Everything you put into this program. You didn't choose us as a coaching staff, but you bought in when we got here, and you've been rewarded. We're grateful to you for that contribution. For those of you coming back, that's not the way we play in the second half, and you know that. I'm proud of you, too, but we're going to get that stuff figured out when we get back together in a couple of weeks. A favorite Saban memory? Lane Kiffin, who served as Saban's offensive coordinator from 2014 to 2016 before becoming Florida Atlantic's coach, offers something both too short and too good. Coach Saban having my kids over for Easter. And then he led the Easter egg hunt. Nick Saban loves pickup basketball. He's the commissioner of his own staff mini leagues. His teams are always stacked. It becomes a running joke among his assistants. Saban's team is the Globetrotters. The other teams are the Washington Generals. Jeremy Pruitt, who will go on to coach Tennessee, is twice a member of Saban's staff. He plays well when he first joins the game, scores a few baskets, blowing by the man guarding him. Suddenly, Saban stops the game. He points to the assistant guarding Pruitt. You and Jeremy swap, he says. Jeremy's on my team. Kirby Smart is an assistant under Saban at LSU in his late 20s working long and grueling hours. One day, Saban calls his staff together. Something is bothering him, and it's not the game plan for Florida. He wants to offer some advice to his coaches. All you young guys had better hurry up and figure out who you're going to get married to, because if you're not careful, you'll be sitting on the porch alone when you're 60, says Saban, who's been together with his wife, Terry, since they were in high school. The lecture sticks with Smart. When Saban leaves to coach the Dolphins, Smart takes a job at Georgia, where he meets Mary Beth, a former Bulldogs basketball player working in the athletic department. They get married a year after they start dating. Smart rejoins Saban in Miami the same year, then moves with him to Alabama. After nine seasons with Saban, Smart becomes the coach at Georgia. In 2017, the Bulldogs defeat Auburn in the SEC championship game, earning a spot in the college football playoff. Smart is on his way to watch tape when his phone rings. It's Saban calling to congratulate his protege. Smart is stunned. I thought it was very thoughtful that he did that, Smart says. I'm sure Miss Terry made him do it. That's okay, too. It's become a tradition for the Sabans to bring Alabama's freshman football players to Lake Tuscaloosa. 
Saban delights in whipping his boat around the lake, attempting to flip the players off the inner tube that drags behind. We have guys who have never been in the water, and we have guys who have been tubing since they were eight years old, Saban says. There is strategy involved. There are countless stories of players who tried, and failed, to hang on with Saban behind the wheel. But there's only one player who's ever been able to triumph over Saban, and the legend of Terrence Cody's tubing prowess only continues to grow. Terrence was 400 pounds as a freshman, Saban says. You try to create waves with the wake so the tube comes up in the air and the guys fly off. Well, you couldn't get him in the air. He was also a really good athlete, so he just hunkered down, too. I tried, but I just couldn't get him off. In July, the Sabans are hosting their annual family reunion at their lake house, three generations gathering together. It has become the one place where Saban can have genuine, mindless fun, where he can relax and enjoy a book, though usually in only a five-page stretch, or watch a TV show. Lately, he's been working through Yellowstone, the new series with Kevin Costner. Saban finds himself feeling unusually reflective. He thinks about how much he loves having so many young kids around. At one point in the gleeful chaos as the kids take to cannonballing into the lake, Saban stands at the end of his dock, taking in the scene. This, too, is a Nick Saban story. I counted them up, and there were fourteen kids, Saban says. I realized I'm responsible for these cats. In the early years, I didn't know how to relax. I think now, mostly through my family, my grandchildren, my wife, I've learned how to separate things a little bit better. We all know that someday we're not going to exist. We're in a minute time frame in terms of the evolution of man over time, from the first speech to all the things that have happened since. So you start to wonder, what kind of person were you? How did you treat other people? What kind of relationships did you have? How were you going to be remembered? Because that's all we've got. Joining me now is ESPN senior writer Kevin Van Valkenburg. Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, awesome to be here, Michael. Thank you. Um, so in this piece, this collection of Nick Saban stories, were you like, were you always curious by Nick Saban or like a Nick Saban type and you sort of fi- wanted to find out like who the man was? Like the man behind the coach? Yeah, yeah I thought um, initially in doing this story that the um, likelihood that Saban would participate in it was not great. And so sometimes when you're writing a story where you don't feel like you're going to have a lot of access, your first sort of thought is like, all right, how can I um, get some insight into this person in a way that uh, is different than maybe someone's ever done before, um, but doesn't necessarily need their participation in doing it. And I'd always just kind of been kicking around um, an idea of like, you know, basically like a a story that's really a collection of short stories about Mm -hmm. uh, someone. And um, so I just really cast the net out as wide as I could and started to sort of figure out, all right, who are the people that I would need to, uh, to find to ask some questions about him? I know this was sort of like a like a team research effort to get all these, but did you find that it was easier than you thought or harder than you thought to find these stories? And were there any that you like that you had like more than you could handle? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely more that I um, than I could handle. Uh, these were sort of the ones that I thought were the most telling. Um, 
you know, there was, I would say it was a little bit harder than I thought, uh, just in terms of getting people to understand the concept of it, which was, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I definitely, football coaches can be hard um, to, like, step outside the football coaching world and box and be like, hey, you know, I actually need a story about Nick Saban, like a, a real, like, anecdote that explains something about him, not just like, well, he works really hard and he watches a lot of film. And so uh, I went through a lot of, um, interviews early on where coaches were kind of like, or friends of him were kind of like, yeah, I don't, I don't really know what to tell you exactly. Um, and then it kind of evolved a little bit when I was, I kept sort of thinking, what's the way to get them to open up about, uh, ask a question will open up. And then, I, so I sort of started asking questions and asked, um, Hallie Grossman to ask these kind of questions at SEC media day of, can you ever remember a time when Nick Saban made you mad mm-hmm. or can you ever remember a time when he surprised you or when he made you laugh? And that sort of forces people to, to be like, Oh, okay, well I, I get it. Here's a, here's a time when he made me laugh. And okay. so um, when I talked to coach Muschamp about it, he told me the story that's it's an anecdote in the piece about Saban basically making a crack at the end of a, like a motivational speaker's talk. I'm like, well, I guess I, I need to start appreciating all you a-holes. And that was when it kind of clicked for me. I was like, okay, that's how to ask these kind of questions. And that's how to get these people to sort of give up a little bit of information. So you open the piece, interesting, where it's almost like Nick Saban saying that maybe people are like confused and like getting it wrong and who I am. And then you sort of, and you close it with Nick Saban, you know, reflecting in his place in the world and his legacy. And, you know, how come those thoughts, the latter, those thoughts only seem to come to him like on a dock surrounded by kids and never Mm -hmm. behind a podium, meaning that, like, don't you think that maybe blending a little bit more into the podium would, uh, would go a long way to kind of eliminate this confusion? I think it's hard for him to, um, kind of downshift into like relaxed vacation Nick mode. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, when I was, when I did get to go down and talk to him, the the joke around the office was, is he, is he in vacation Nick mode or is he in working Nick mode? <laughs> and they were like, ah, oh, he's kind of like, he'd just come back from vacation the day before. And like, okay, hey, he's kind of in between, like he's not quite vacation coach right now. So I think it's that he did explain that when he's on the lake, that's like one of the few places in the whole world, maybe the only place where he can kind of relax. And he doesn't mean doesn't think about football, but it is he is able to sort of step back and like think about the bigger picture of life and read a book and watch a you know TV show. I explained early on just in saying who I was that I was from Montana and I grew up there. And he immediately was like, "Oh, have you seen the the series Yellowstone with Kevin Costner that's going on?" Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, yeah, I've watched a, a piece of it. And he was like, yeah, uh, Terry and I are, are just, that's what we were been kind of watching on Netflix late at night. And I think, like, if you if you, if you you went to Nick Saban's press conferences every single day and you hung around him, you'd probably see a little bit more, like, humanity that you that's, like, in this piece. But if you're not someone who's, like, an Alabama beat writer, if you're just, like, seeing him after, you know, games or seeing him on the sidelines – you have a very kind of, I think, narrow picture of who Saban is. And it, you know, it's kind of probably colored by his most like intense moments. And sure. so uh, if you're able to kind of step back and sort of consider the whole of Nick Saban, which I think maybe hopefully this story, does, it's, it's going against type a little bit. It's trying to show you that he does have, you know, a human side. It's just that he isn't um, really going to show that in like the 20 second clip you see on SportsCenter after the national championship game. 
Right. It's like how they've, in a way, like I would say, you can, like they've created the confusion. Like when you see a photo of Bill Belichick hanging with his girlfriend, uh, wearing a Halloween costume or like rocking out to Bon Jovi, like it seems jarring because he's, because in the opportunities he's had to interact, he's created the difference. Correct. Yeah. I mean, you know, I I think that uh, what I like about Saban is in some ways, He's not like a moralist. He doesn't sort of acting like he's, you know, the person who's out here, you know, better than anyone else shaping, molding young men. Like there's some of that, but a lot of it is just like, I'm here to win football games and I'm here because I want to give you an opportunity to graduate. And what you do with that is up to you. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's kind of admirable. A lot of times where football coaches can maybe get themselves into troubles where they act as though they are sort of these great molders of young men and they're above it all. And they're, they're those sort of, moral beacon of the universe uh, or the university anyway. And, and then when something goes sideways for them, you see that maybe they aren't quite living up to that uh, claim. That's when a lot of people feel like, well, you're just a hypocrite. And I think at least with Saban, he's sort of more or less like, you know what, what you see is kind of what you get. I'm, I'm hard and I'm tough, but I'm fair. Now there's, uh, as you, we mentioned with the dock and the lake and his, and his, um, his wife, family seems to be a huge part of his life to the point that you have one antidote, how he basically told his coaches, like, you better hurry up and find someone. Mm-hmm. Now, is that how much of the, now, like, you hear coaches talk about, like, this is a family, and then you also talk about how um, when he brings the players up to the lake and he tries to flip them off the tube. But yeah. how important is, like, like the coaching family and making sure that the families within those families are, like, monitored and taken care of? Like, is that a big part of like Nick Saban, the coach, but blending into Nick Saban, the man? I think that Nick realizes how much um, his wife has been hugely important to his life and his success and his sanity. Mm -hmm. And so I I think, you know, he knew uh, Terry back when they were in middle school and Mm -hmm. they started dating when he was high school. And I think he, you know, he knows what it was like to get fired by Ohio State and basically be scraping by on nothing, you know, and to be a grad assistant at Kent State and have almost nothing. And and the sacrifices that they had to make and their willing, her willingness to really say, all right, you know, I'll move with you to, uh, you know, to the far reaches of wherever, to West Virginia mm-hmm. one year, to, you know, back to uh, Michigan or to Ohio State. And I mean, he bounced around quite a lot mm-hmm. before, you know, staying in Michigan State for I think six years. And so that's what I think he knows that if it was just kind of a loner, if you were just kind of someone who was like, yeah, I'm so focused on work that you wouldn't be any good at work. You wouldn't be able to sort of realize like this is essentially your teacher as a, as a coach. And if you don't realize like, like the humanity involved in what you're doing, then you're not going to be any good at it. And so I do think that it was genuine when he was sort of, you know, telling Kirby Smart, it, look, you know, if you, I mean, he's telling his whole staff, it's like, you can't just sit here and be sleeping at the office and you can't just be like so obsessed with this. You got to have some other thing that helps you have perspective and decompress. And, you know, the first time he ever kind of held his, uh, his granddaughter, I think was a pretty big sobering moment for him. And mm-hmm. just kind of realizing, man, like, you know, life kind of is, is a pretty great tapestry. And if you're just focused on, Tennessee next week, like uh-huh. you're going to miss the bigger picture of it. So the story you had about um, Coach Saban's patience with a high school coach back when he was with the Oilers uh, is that something that uh, you've like you've heard more than once? Like the, those kind of examples, like the selfless mentoring. Like, and is there any form 
today that you've heard of that he sort of does? You know, that anecdote is actually in some ways like the genesis of this story, because I had written about how mummy, um, when, you know, a few years ago as being like one of the people who helps sort of change college football. And Hal told me that story. He's like, you think, you think, you know, Nick, but here's a great story about Nick that, you know, I'm guarantee you've never heard. Mm -hmm. And this was when he was back with the Oilers, he was willing to sort of, you know, mentor me and, and, uh, when he didn't know at all who I was. And I basically saved that for a couple of years, knowing like someday I think I'm going to, it didn't fit in the, in the mummy story, but I felt like someday I'm going to figure out a place to use that. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, what I think of in talking to people about Saban is true is that he might be a difficult person to work with, but he's always willing to like sit and watch film and explain things. He's always like a, been a really good teacher. And I think that you see in the people who sort of come from Saban's coaching tree that they really get like the detail, like obsession um, with stuff that, you know, it's, they're good at explaining to their players. This is why, like you have to open your hips on this kind of uh, sort of, you know, drop back. And because he's really good at that kind of stuff. Now he might yell and scream if you, uh, if your guys don't do it right, because he's explained it and explained it, explained it, mm -hmm. but um, he's still a really good teacher and willing to put in the time. And I think that that's why, uh, a lot of people who have worked for him really respect him. You don't see anybody really who's worked for him like badmouth him right. They because they know like he's a great teacher. So the story about uh, at LSU recruiting, helping to recruit Simeon Augustus, it, mm -hmm. like that seems like as selfless as it comes. And, you know, the, the re, like, what do you have on her? The research, the preparation, like the swarming effect by bringing his coaches in on it. Is yeah. that, did you find that part of it is the perspective that he has at his role with these schools that like whether he thinks so or not, like he realizes like when you're the head coach of a SEC football team, like you're a big deal. Or is it more like that's what whatever I can do, I can do, even if he was like nothing? I think that he, even though he's bounced around at a bunch of schools, uh, I think that he really does understand like that all coaches are similar in their kind of like obsessions and that what they have to do is kind of similar. So it's a sort of like a tribe or a, you know, a brotherhood for lack of a better word that they all kind of belong to. And so he, he understands too, that especially in the South, like the role that a football coach plays at a Southern university, it's a very mm -hmm. like, you know, the quote in there is like, Nick was like a godlike figure in Louisiana at the mm -hmm. time. And so I do think that like, he likes the idea of like, the t you know a tide raising all boats and so if he here's he's thinking about okay you know if Simone Augustus wants to come to LSU it's good for LSU it's good for all of us it's good for our program if the women's basketball program is good it's good for morale it's good mm -hmm. for the student body and so heck if I can take you know half an hour out of my day and basically tell my assistants this is an important part of the job too like you're part of a community you're not just in this for yourself so I want you to memorize like all of the names of her family members and her high school stats. And if you see her on campus, when she comes to visit us, you tell her that you want to be a tiger. And so in hearing that from the assistant coach, I was like, Oh, you know, that seems like a little bit like kind of hyperbolic in the mm -hmm. sense, like, is that really true? And then when Michelle Vopel talked to Simone Augustus at the WNBA all-star game, Simone was like, Oh yeah, it's totally true. Like, <laughs> and it definitely made an effect. Like just, just to know that like, 
Saban would be, you know, that invested and have, you know, all those people interested in doing it, that that totally made a difference for me. So that was kind of cool to hear that, like, people might have, I thought at first, like, well, people might be telling the, this kind of story to, you know, kind of prop up Nick Saban. And, mm-hmm. and, but when you go right to the source of, you know, a girl who was 18 years old at the time, she was like, yeah, absolutely. It made a difference. Now, is that something in your experience that is rare for a coach to do at a school like that? Like, would somebody go do that at, you know, at Tennessee? I don't think it's rare, but I do think that um, it speaks to, like, a certain kind of coach. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. would that happen at 9% of the schools? No, but would it happen at 50%? Yeah, I think that that's true. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of coaches who want to coach in college, they understand the the value of having um, a good overall athletic department. And, you know, when you, I played college athletics and one thing that you sort of you need to understand about it is like the athletes are constantly like interacting with one another. And mm-hmm. so like the football team knows the women's basketball team because they're like passing each other in the athletic facility and they might be in like sort of study hall together. They might have the same tutor. They're in the same weight room together. They're, you know, they're flirting, they're going on dates, they're hanging out at the same parties. Like, that's all a part of a community. And so the coaches deep down kind of know that and they kind of, they take a little sense of pride too. And I remember our, our coaches saying like, you go to the women's basketball game or you go to the, the women's volleyball game and you show your support because it's mm-hmm. important for our school's morale. And then when you get recruits who come who are like, Oh, do I want to be a part of LSU or, or wherever? And they feel like, well, if there's an atmosphere where everybody is sort of in this together. Yeah. I think some coaches definitely, uh, do it. Now, I think some coaches on the opposite end might just be like, it doesn't matter to me. I'm only here to win football games. Uh, and I think that's what people think about is true of Nick Saban, but I mm-hmm. think that the actual reality is of it is that, like, you know, when that tornado happened in Tuscaloosa, uh, a lot of this had been already written, so I didn't include any of this in the story, but Saban was out, you know, like, doing work in the community and helping clear debris, and, like, he, yeah. I think that was when he felt really invested in the community and in some ways probably part of the reason why he's still there and didn't, you know, take a job with Texas when they were really were desperate for a head coach is that he was like, you know what, this is, does kind of feel like home to me now. What's sort of like how there's like two different ways of saying the same thing where, you know, I'm an LSU tiger versus like, I'm an LSU tiger football player. Like one of them means yeah. more than the other. Absolutely. And absolutely. I think that that's, and you know, the, the kind of maybe complicated thing about Saban is that he is able to sort of shift those loyalties, like, you know, snapping his fingers when it comes time to leave Michigan state and go to LSU or when Mm -hmm. it comes time to leave LSU and go to the dolphins or back to, you know, back to Alabama to go to play into college. And I I think I would be interesting, you know, to think about like how, what does, when Saban, does he like deep down as he sort of feel pride when LSU kind of like, does well or is it there's you know because it, he was that was an important part of his life first place he ever won a national, national championship place he really became kind of recognized as one of the best coaches in the game or is it just because he could is it like a divorce where you're just completely kind of after a few years you know wall that part of yourself off emotionally and you don't you don't care or think about it anymore and while in one of this other anecdotes about his uh with his father well, Coach Saban is, uh, you know, miles away and millions of dollars away from the coal mines of West Virginia. It, it mm-hmm. still, he still seems to have that, like, that old approach where 
while he is not, like there's almost that scared straight that he's one bad season away from maybe being back there. So yes, has that? Do you think that that mentality and that almost that story came across? I was interested to know if it came across multiple times because it's something that he still sort of wears on his sleeve to this day. You know, I think a lot of people who grew up with nothing, they're never able to really um, shake that sentiment of like, I, I'm one step away from being back working at a gas station. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, you know, what Saban had sort of drilled into him. Like the uh, the margin for error when he was a kid in terms of like making it was such a like thin one that he really was determined to like, all right, I'm, you know, there's an anecdote about him going down the coal mines uh, when his dad, when he got a, a D in class and, and his one sort of thought on the way back up was I'm never, ever coming back here. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, that explains a lot about why he's so driven and why, you know, he's probably going to coach well into his seventies. Cause it's just like, you just when that when you learn that mentality at a very young age, and you think to yourself, "I'm never going back," like that that is burned into your DNA, and it doesn't it doesn't easily come out. Do you think when all is said and done, though, when he does like you know when he let's say he retires on his 80th birthday, just hypothetically, do you think Nick Saban wants to be remembered for the legacy of his national titles or for what we learned from these 14 stories? I think that as he grows older, that part of what you're sort of seeing him say at the end is I'm starting to see a little bit more perspective. You know, his dad was a very hard and driven and difficult person. And it was very hard, I think, for he and his dad to have a kind of relationship where they had sort of, you know, open affection for one another that Mm -hmm. um, and but his dad made a huge, huge difference in their community by basically like building up this Pop Warner football team that he would, he bought like a bus, like an old school bus that he would drive around the little community where they grew up in West Virginia and pick the kids up so they could come to practice. Mm -hmm. And so many of those kids who maybe a lot of them still ended up like working in the mines, but like a lot of them ended up sort of going to college because they then like played peewee football and then high school football and then college football and they never otherwise would have and so i think what saban in some ways sees is is what he does is like he's think of how many like first generation college kids Mm -hmm. have played football for nick saban whether it's at michigan state or lsu or alabama or wherever right and so i think in a way he's he kind of wants to sort of tell himself like i'm helping kids kind of get opportunities that they wouldn't other otherwise ever get. And so the national championships are certainly how you measure like your success level in the sport. Mm -hmm. But I think the greater sort of mission would be like, you know, did you, did you make the world a better place by sort of, you know, helping kids kind of get enough discipline to do well enough in school to give themselves an opportunity to become the first person in their family to graduate college. And I think that is important to him. And he's starting to really crystallize that, like the, you know, the foundation that he has, the, the, the Nick's kids or, you know, it's through his father, it's named after his father that they donate money to so that, you know, using, I think a lot of football coaches 
that's all they know is football. And so they're using football to help kind of steer kids away from otherwise like bad choices or, you know, lives that they would just not ever get to know other kids uh, on the same kind of way as his teammates. And as one thing I think Nick is really fascinatingly good at is like speaking to kids in their own kind of language, like even Mm -hmm. at the age, you know, 65, like, you know, we call that like kind of code switching, but like Mm -hmm. he's so good at like relating to like kids from really tough disadvantaged areas and, and at talking to like high level, like, you know, football sort of donors and stuff. And so I think Saban understands that football is in that way, kind of like a unifying force. Like he's able to kind of, uh, get kids to sort of say like, look, we're all a mishmash of cultures and economic backgrounds and racism and stuff. But here in this sort of small place in the football locker room or, or field, you can sort of feel all the same in some ways. And I think that that is one thing that if you read like a couple of the saving biographies or whatever, he has always been someone who African-American kids, when he was a kid, like liked and felt like he related to them. And the same is true as like a coach. Like he's is not a person who plays favorites except for anybody who like works really hard. Like that's the kind of people he kind of relates best to. And to your point, it's like when you speak to somebody who came from nothing in 2015, coming from nothing in 2015 is the same as coming from 2000, nothing in 1958 or whatever year he or whatever, you know, Absolutely. eight years were when he was in West Virginia. Well, I just know that, like, you know, two of the people during his time in Alabama that he's sort of most proud of what they kind of did are Barrett Jones, who was like, you know, a 4.0, almost like a Rhodes Scholar, uh, who came from, you know, a, a well-to-do family in Memphis, and Rolando McLean, who came from, like, really poor circumstances and has had some issues, like, since graduating, but, like, grew up with nothing and those the way that both of them sort of evolved into like really important leaders uh in his program he i know he speaks glowingly about both of them having talked to him about both of them and they're those people are those two guys are from such different economic racial backgrounds that that's kind of i think saban's like ideal in terms of like you can come from anything and you can still rise to be great within the sport of football. And I'm sure all these nice things that uh, these interest, these this perspective you're giving is going to be agreed by many people, unless they went to Auburn. <laughs> I mean, you know, Saban is, I think, a very complicated uh, person. I mean, it's not always as as simple as you can make it within three, four thousand words. And so that you know, you could have taken, I think. 15 different anecdotes of him being, you know, a heart and maybe painted a different picture of him. But I sort of felt like in some ways I wanted to go a little bit against type and show that this too is like a big part of who Saban is. And, you know, I'm a big believer in the sort of the Walt Whitman thing of like, I contain multitudes. Like that's very true of Saban. And so, yeah, I think Auburn people would you know, might kind of sneer at, you know, oh, Saban, he's he's not any better than the rest of them and stuff. And Kevin, that's fake, fake news. Fake news, Kevin. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? I think they would feel differently if it was. I've also interviewed Gus Melzahn at length. So, okay. you know, I know uh, I know that, you know, he 
has similar sort of beliefs in some of this stuff. And so I'm not sure that your opinions of this kind of thing should should vary based on the laundry that they're wearing. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so. But it was a great piece. It was, I, I definitely, I, I always love going into anything where I'm like, I, I learned something I didn't know. Like, cause especially when I try to pretend like, Oh, I know everything. I'm going to read this and critique it. Like, no, I didn't know that, 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 or that. So it was an amazing yeah. piece. And we really thank you for your time today. Hey, you bet. Thanks. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories Podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll be back soon with more Double Truck Stories Podcasts.